Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter, Democratic Debate Preview. Joe, this week, the first Democratic debates will be held in Miami. 20 candidates, five moderators, four total hours. The moderators from NBC and MSNBC, Lester Holt, Savannah Guthrie, Chuck Todd, Rachel Maddow, and Jose Diaz-Ballard of NBC Telemundo. Here are the lineups. The first group of 10 appearing on Wednesday, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, Senator Amy Klobuchar, John Delaney of Maryland, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Julian Castro, Representative Tim Ryan, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, and Washington Governor Jay Inslee. The second group of 10 appearing on Thursday night, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Kamala Harris, former Vice President Joe Biden, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Michael Bennett, author Marianne Williamson, Congressman Eric Swalwell, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, and Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado. Those are a long list, Joe. To qualify, candidates had to receive more than 65,000 individual donations, including from 200 unique donors per state in at least 20 states, or at least 1% in three polls approved by the Democratic National Committee. Joe, the first night looks like it will be Senator Elizabeth Warren's to lose as she faces off against nine lower polling candidates desperate for a breakout moment. What's her strategy and what's the strategy of the other people on that stage? Let me say first, people who are expecting what they traditionally think of as a debate is they're going to be disappointed. It's not a debate. It's a a candidate's forum. It's like an open town hall meeting with the six to 10 or 12 people who are running for you know, town council. So don't expect there to be a full exploration of everyone's issues where everyone's strengths and everyone's weaknesses are brought to life by either the moderators or the other candidates. If you include commercials, Joe, it's about seven minutes maximum per candidate. They're all spending a lot of time off the campaign trail doing debate prep a very different debate prep than you would see for the general election, which where you have to know so many different issues. Here, what the strategy for all of them, including Elizabeth Warren, is to get noticed, to stand out, to say the thing in that debate that gets played the next morning on the news. My favorite recollection of one of these debates during a primary was uh, Walter Mondale and Gary Hart in 1984, when Walter Mondale was losing and was hanging on by a thread and someone gave him the line, where's the beef that came from a Wendy's TV commercial, that six seconds was the debate. So I think what all the candidates are doing is they're trying to keep where's the beef somewhere in in their head, which is how can I say the most memorable thing and then where do I use it? Where do I find a moment in my seven minutes to deliver that one or two lines? All of them, at least the ones that are preparing properly, that's all they're trying to do. The lineup was drawn, you know, randomly. So it was not for one the benefit of one or another. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, I think, for Elizabeth Warren. She's the, the candidate who's surging in the polls. She's got the momentum. It would have been very interesting to see her in the second night. 
And while many people uh, would look forward to her taking on Joe Biden, what I'm disappointed about is that she's not going to be in the same debate as Bernie Sanders because that's where the fight's going on right now. The fight is going on in the far left of the party for who's going to be the alternative for whoever the moderate candidate is. It's likely that Joe Biden will be left standing, but we don't know that. But if you look at the field, I'd say the one thing that we didn't know when they set the field was that Cory Booker would all of a sudden be taking on some prominence. People are going to be looking to see how he handles the Biden question because they tangled last week. And Biden is not on that stage. No. So he's got free free run there. No. So again, I think the most interesting back and forth will be from Booker, will be from Warren. And then I think a lot of people will be who've been wondering, where's Beto been? This is his chance. I mean, the one thing— The former Texas congressman, Beto O'Rourke, who came really close to knocking off Ted Cruz in the fairly red state, increasingly less so, of Texas last year. Yeah, and I think one of the distinguishing parts of uh, O'Rourke's candidacy is his ability to motivate, is his ability to give the 45-second speech that makes your head turn. So I think people will be watching that closely. Looking at the rest of the field, I think there'll just be a lot of back and forth, a lot of pre-polled and tested talking points about, you know, what each of these candidates thinks the theory of the race is. So we know that Elizabeth Warren will be talking uh, about having a plan. And, you know, she'll she'll probably pick three or four of these and say, I have a plan for income inequality. I have a plan for free college. I have a plan for... And my guess is she's going to look for some soundbite that brings all of those plans together. The second thing with Warren, and it's been my theory for a while, that I have a plan has helped. But what has really fueled her surge is that she's been a half a step of every other Democrat when it comes to taking Trump on. She was the first to call for impeachment. She was the first to call for Bill Barr's impeachment, if, if I'm not mistaken. So I think... She has to balance the I have a plan versus I'm really, really tough on Donald Trump and he should be gone. Uh, So that's what I'll be looking for from her. And the risk is high for Warren because if she she doesn't distinguish herself, I think there'll be talk of she didn't do well at the kids table. But the reward is high, too, that she gets to, you know, dominate one night of coverage potentially if she does well. And, Jill, on the second night, when I thought of when I looked at that lineup for the second night and calculated the little bit of time that these candidates have. I went back to, I did a debate prep back in 2006 for former Maryland Governor Michael Steele, who was running for the United States Senate. And Michael Deaver, Ronald Reagan's image guy, was in the room. And we we hit the candidate with some hard questions. And he started arguing with us on the answers. And Deaver just stood up and said, Mike, Mike, what's the impression that you want the viewer of this debate to have? when you are finished. So on the second night where you have four of the five top polling candidates in Bernie Sanders, Senator Harris, Vice President Biden, Mayor Pete, if you're Joe Biden, what impression do you want the the viewer to have of you on that debate stage? Joe Biden wants to create the impression that there's one guy up there that looks like a president and then are nine people that might be ready to be president someday. I think he wants to focus this on Trump. He wants to highlight the fact that he's the one who can beat Trump. 
and that Trump is the enemy, not the other Democrats. And I think the more they come after him, the more he'll play the card of the more we fight with each other, the more likely it is he gets reelected and he will try to diminish those around him. As the front runner, you have very little to gain in a debate. You don't become the like uber front runner or better front runner. <laughs> so in some respects, debates are to be, are to be survived by the front runner. And the Deaver admonition is appropriate here to look presidential and to look like and to frame the issues as, as he's talked about a little bit in the past, the four years of Trump, we can survive. Eight years, we can't. That's about as big a frame as you can put on it, that our democracy will not survive another four years while everyone else is talking about their plan for this and their plan for that. I think that's what Biden will do. In terms of being a prosecutor, being a debater, what we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings, probably on that second stage, Senator Kamala Harris has the most experience. What does she want to do on Thursday night when she's standing there in between all those men, Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete and former Vice President Biden, to distinguish herself? And again, what impression does she want people to have of Kamala Harris after, after Thursday night? Well, I think everybody on that stage, except for Bernie Sanders, wants to show themselves to be young and vital because I think they they view Biden's Achilles heel as that he's older and, you know, he's in his mid-70s. The impression that she wants to leave is new generation and woman, a person of color, and someone who can be tough. This is always a harder task for female politicians than male politicians because she also needs to seem approachable. We look back at you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008 and the pendulum swung, I think, too far towards I'm tough, I can be commander-in-chief. Kamala's got that question of both her experience and her personality and temperament that gets scrutinized a little more than a man's would. And it's not fair, but we, we're not going to solve that sexism problem between now and you know, the end of the week. So let's just acknowledge that it exists. I, one of the things that I think she's done very well in this campaign is she seems to be having fun. And I, she can't, does. I can't underestimate how important that is in, in a campaign, that you look like you're enjoying what you're you doing. You saw Bill Clinton do it up close and personally, and yeah. I think it was one of his most effective qualities. You've seen people who have lost who it looks like a chore. I think she's had trouble when tough questions have been put to her. That's where she's fallen down. Is it the lawyerly answers that she gives? It's not the lawyerly answers. It's that moment of indecision where she doesn't know which way to go. And it's been apparent in several of the town halls. That comes with experience. You know, the, the problem with presidential campaigns is you tend to get great experience and get to run again because the the penalty for not doing well is immediate and harsh. And, you know, all the candidates will experience that at some point. So I'll, I'll be interested in, you know, how she performs. She's working hard on trying to figure out, again, the impression. But what's that one or two lines that says, this is what I'm about. And this is what I want people to remember. This is what I want to be on TV tomorrow. They all, all 10 of them in both debates, they want to be the moment. Each debate is going to have a moment. It'll be an exchange. It'll be something. And the, and the great part about debates, candidate forums, whatever you call them, and I always tell people this, that you can have the best staff in the world. You can have the best ads in the world, the best polling, the best organization, the best get out the vote. But campaigns 
more often than not, turn on the moment when you're up there by yourself and you either say, where's the beef or you don't, or you either say, I paid for this microphone or you don't, or you say that Poland isn't controlled by the Soviet Union or you don't. It is a great test and it is the most important test we have for our leaders because they're up there alone. When I look at the list of this 10, clearly, I think Sanders, and to a little bit lesser extent, Harris is going to spend some time going after going after a, a Vice President Biden. I think maybe the in, most interesting person to watch on this is, is Pete Buttigieg, because to the extent this is a debate, he's going to be debating Bernie Sanders here on one side and Joe Biden on the other. And just to put it in perspective, Joe, I was when I was thinking about this episode— I did a little calculation. Mayor Pete Buttigieg was born 10 years after Joe Biden was elected to the United States Senate. You made that important point about they want to appear young and vibrant. Talk about that contrast between those two guys who are 40-plus years older than him. It's a pure generational play. He doesn't have to do anything but be himself and look who he is to, to make that case. And the reason I think that this lineup is so advantageous for him is he sits, you know, on the ideological spectrum between Sanders on the left and Biden in the middle. And I think he can straddle that and say, on one hand, I can bring you the progressive values of Bernie Sanders. I'm for many of these things. On the other hand, you know, over here, I I run a city. I have executive experience. I have the ability to move to the center where it's appropriate. But guess what? These two guys could be my dad. And, you know, my dad's 75 years old and I love him, but I don't want him to be president. They're not up for it. Like, we need somebody younger. All along thought that from the beginning that Sanders was not going to succeed here because he was going to get hit by too many sides. He was going to get hit by Elizabeth Warren, who's just a more effective campaigner than he is. And by guys like Pete Buttigieg who say, yeah, you know, Bernie's right about a lot of things and I wish him a good retirement. I wanted to bring up Bernie in particular, Joe, because I heard a comment and you and I hear a lot of comments on television. But this one stuck out where somebody remarked that in 2016, Bernie seemed to like being the insurgent, like to being the outsider, the inside outsider. He didn't expect to win. They watch him now in 2019 and He's got a little bit more anger, a little he seems a little bit grumpier because their assessment was Bernie thinks he should win. If you're Bernie Sanders, how do you put yourself in that position as the I ran last time, I finished second, I should get a look from everyone? Yeah, listen, I think Sanders is the one who is just going to go up there and be himself, and this is what himself is, which is he believes he's, he has started a revolution a political revolution in the United States and that he's brought all of these issues to the fore single-handedly. No one had ever thought of any of these things before Bernie arrived on the stage and that he's owed the nomination. In politics, being owed something rarely works. Earning something generally works. He hasn't really portrayed the I'm going to earn your every vote. In fact, when he was asked about uh, Elizabeth Warren passing him in the national polls, his answer wasn't, she's had some really good ideas and I think she's running a good campaign, but campaign's not over. I'm going to outwork her, you know, every day. Uh, His answer was, well, people like her because she's a woman. 
and they they think that maybe a woman should get the nomination. I'll leave others to decide how effective that response is. But I think in some ways he's got the easiest task on debate night because his message is the simplest, which is revolution. I'm the person who started this, and God damn it, I'm not going to be Moses. You know, I'm getting across the, that sea. <laughs> if I can part the waters, I can walk across on my two, or I can walk on the water. His challenge is pretty straightforward. He doesn't need to be noticed. People will notice him. He has got some very clear ideas that he expresses well. I just don't think this debate format is designed to stem the tide of of how he's been hit because I think Elizabeth Warren the night before will by definition get a lot of attention because she's on with some of the lower polling people. And this sort of aspirational younger voters that were so much with Bernie uh, last time, you remember he used to go to a college campus and fill arenas. It was amazing. Those people are looking at Pete Buttigieg. He's a fellow millennial, and they think he's got a lot of the same ideas. He's got the passion. He's got he's smart as hell. And you know what? He doesn't look like my grandfather. In some respects, Joe Biden has the same problem when appealing to young people. But Biden has solid support among the non-millennials, the over 45 people who are dependable voters uh, every single time. Bernie doesn't. His support came primarily from younger people. That support is being cannibalized from three different directions in this race. I think his task is straightforward, which is to be Bernie. I don't know how much help it will be for him at this point in the race. Joe, there's also in the second night, there's a couple of people I think particularly about author Marianne Williamson and entrepreneur Andrew Yang, who in a pre-Donald Trump world, we would ask, why are they even on that stage Post-Donald Trump, if you've done anything of any note, you probably deserve to be on the stage. What would you advise somebody who is a complete political outsider? Those two people, I haven't heard either one of them speak. Is it distinguish yourself or is it attack that front runner? You know, I think it's distinguish yourself. I don't think either one of them will go after Vice President Biden. It, it's, it wouldn't make any sense. Their task is to say – that politics is broken and to expect a bunch of career politicians to fix it is the definition of insanity. Their problem is made a thousand, a million, ten million times harder by Donald Trump's performance. One of the staggering pieces of polling out of, there was a poll out of Iowa, I want to say about a week, ten days ago, and it had two completely staggering pieces of information to me as someone who's watched politics for 40 years. One of them said a majority of Iowa Democrats favored people who had experience in D.C. versus people who didn't have experience. That number used to be about 15, 20 percent. Right. People would, would sneak into Iowa pretending they'd never been in public office, right. even though they'd been in the Senate for 20 years, and would never talk about what they were doing in D.C. Now, at least Democrats view it as something they want. The, the second part of it, the top issue for them, uh, for Iowa Democrats, was abortion. So I think over the two nights, particularly the second night, there is going to be some jockeying for who is the most pro-woman? Who is the candidate that is going to have the, the agenda for women in America? 
who can distinguish themselves as the candidate that women can get behind. This is a real opportunity for Kirsten Chilobrand, who up until now had, just hasn't made her mark on the race. I don't think people have decided they don't like her. They're just not paying much attention to her. Her strategy uh, and message has been very much focused on the working mother aspect of her life and how that translates into her policies. If I'm Gillibrand, I'm pro- I probably at some point want to engage Kamala on these issues or to at least try to demonstrate at the end of the night that while Bernie Sanders may be the most socialist candidate on the stage, Joe Biden may be the most experienced, tested person on the stage. Both uh, Kamala and uh, Kirsten want to come off as I'm the one women should get behind. Great point. I also think if you look at both debates, each debate has one governor each. Right. The fact that Inslee and Hickenlooper didn't get put in the same debate is an advantage for both of them because they can each make a case in their debate that you guys talk. I do. You guys are all involved in gridlock in Washington. Look at what I have done in my state. Look at what I've done with your talk and put it into action. They're both popular governors. They're both very popular governors, and they both have, in their own ways, impressive records on important issues to Democrats. So I think that's another little subplot of the night, an advantage for those two governors. Will it be bad form? You set it up a little bit between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Does it hurt Bernie if he decides to take a shot at Elizabeth Warren when she's not on the stage? I don't know that Bernie has figured out yet how to deal with Elizabeth Warren. I think it would be a mistake for Bernie to take Warren on in any direct way, given the momentum she's she's got in the campaign. The Bernie bros are really good at opposition research and, and anonymously dropping things on people. I expect that's how they'll go after Warren as opposed to a direct one-on-one confrontation. And finally, Joe, the elephant in the living room or the elephant who won't be in the room, Donald Trump. I read somewhere where he has vowed to live tweet both debates. I think on your shadow briefing, I learned that he's going to do a commentary for InfoWars. Of course, you were kidding, but... Really? (laughs) Will Donald Trump in some way try to hijack this debate, whether it's a tweet or some other way, or these two debates, to take the attention? One of the things we've seen over the last three years plus is that Donald Trump... When somebody else is getting attention, doesn't like it very much. So talk about the Trump factor in this. Well, let me do it two ways because the question you asked is too easy to (laughs) to answer, but I'll get to it. There's a Trump factor for each of the candidates. They all have to kind of walk the fine line between passing the I hate Trump test that most Democratic voters need to hear, but then transitioning to what you're going to do because while voters – don't like Trump or don't like what he's doing, if you look at the midterms, they did respond to people who had ideas about how to make their life better. And I think that that's important. So that's the challenge they'll have. They'll have to do something that shows, yeah, I don't like Trump either, but the but is, you know, what will distinguish them. As far as Trump goes, of course he'll throw himself into the middle of it. Of course, he'll throw around a bunch of stupid nicknames, and of course, the media will lap it up. They can't help themselves. In spite of your counseling, Joe, which you have been fairly consistent and fairly relentless, I have to say. 
They don't listen. I, I agree always that it's great to disclose both your strengths and weaknesses. And so let me disclose a weakness here that there's not a single person in the media that listens to me. There's not a single media executive who picks up their phone in the morning and says, how did we do last night? Or how do you think we should cover this? That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion or lots of opinions. You know, it is a problem in this race that Trump is able to drive a good bit of the coverage on the other side. It shouldn't be that way. It distorts what's going on in the Democratic side. You deal with the situation as it is as opposed to how it should be. So I don't think a lot of Democrats are wringing their hands over this. They're just dealing with it. I don't think Trump understands the power of incumbency. He announced in the middle of June that he was running for re-election and you know, had a big old rally, You know, spoke for an hour and a half. One cable network took it because it was just the same old stuff. But more importantly, that night he wasn't the president. He was a candidate for president. When I worked for Bill Clinton in 1996, he never announced he was running for re-election. And we once a month ask, are we ever going to announce? And his answer was always the same, which is why would I be a candidate when I can be the president? Why would I talk about what I can do as opposed to talk about what I have done? Trump doesn't have the record to run on. But every time he engages one of these candidates, he brings himself down to their level. And that is an enormous advantage for a challenger. Most challengers do not lose because the public sees in a race for the presidency a president and a candidate. Trump seems to be doing everything he can to give the public a choice between a candidate and a candidate. As infuriating as it is that Trump can manipulate the media, I hope he does, you know, and I hope he, I hope he live tweets whatever nicknames he's going to come up with and whatever, whatever lies he wants to tell because he puts himself on equal footing with the Democratic candidates. And that is like the first threshold question. You normally have to wait to the first debate to accomplish that. And some candidates never accomplish it. They, they flame out in the first debate and it's all over. Whoever the Democratic nominee is going to enter this race as someone that the public sees as equal to the president because the president has brought himself down to where they are. Joe, you mentioned where's the beef. I remember watching Ronald Reagan in one of his debates with Walter Mondale where Reagan was getting to that point where he was fairly old and – uh, he began the debate by saying, I don't think that age should be an issue in this debate. I won't hold my opponent's youth and inexperience against him. I remember when I watched that, I said to myself, wow, he got the other guy to laugh. Talk a little bit about using humor. And is there any danger if you're not good at it? Obviously, Bill Clinton was great at it. Ronald Reagan was great at it. Barack Obama had skill with it. What's the danger if you're a Joe Biden and you try to tell a joke and it falls flat? Well, let me let, let me digress for a minute first on, on, on the Reagan line. That line didn't come out of nowhere. That was in the second debate. In the first debate, Reagan did fairly well in the first debate. And then near the end, kind of went off into an alternative universe, started talking about going on Highway 1 in California and taking a drive and doing it. And really just kind of lost his mind for about two minutes. He looked out of it. He was out of it. There was no doubt. I was standing 20 yards from where he was, you know, just off stage. And everybody was looking at each other like, what just happened? 
And in a race that was not uh, particularly competitive between the first debate and the second debate, there was a real sense that this was now a campaign and this was something that Mondale might be able to win if Reagan did not improve his performance in the second debate. And it was the talk for two weeks. I mean, it, it really dominated the campaign. And he came out in the second debate and we knew that he would have something. But when he, when he opened with that line, I'm not going to hold my opponent's inexperience against him. You know, we all kind of looked at each other and said, it's over. With a great one-liner, it's not just how it was written. It was how it was delivered. He obliterated that issue. And Mondale did the right thing. It was funny. He laughed. And to the other question, you can go into a debate with a bunch of one-liners, some that are serious, some that are funny. It's great when you can pull off a joke at what seems to be your expense but is actually someone else's expense. The problem is when to deploy it. When it doesn't work, it's when someone's thinking, oh, this is my last chance or I just got to use this line and it comes out of context and it just doesn't work. The Mondale wears the beef, which the fact of the matter is he'd never seen the commercial. He didn't know what wears the beef meant, but it was explained to him. Someone showed him the commercial in, in debate prep and, in, and over time he realized, yeah, that could be pretty powerful. Could be. It wasn't like the whole idea of that debate – but he, but he saw the opening when, it, when you know, Hart was going off and talking about a bunch of big plans that had no details around them and was like, I'm solving this, I'm solving that. And it just was the right moment. A bunch of people sitting on the side of the stage, we all looked at each other and said, we're back. We got a chance because that, that literally, the look on Gary Hart's face, he didn't laugh. He had a kind of stricken look. He didn't know what to do. Some of the best lines are prepared and practiced. Some of them are off the cuff. Best single line of any debate I've ever seen came from Lloyd Benson when he was debating Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle was, you know, he was an unusual pick. He was seen as kind of a lightweight, and there was a lot of hand-wringing in the Republican Party that, you know, Bush had blown it. And he got up on the stage, and he was comparing himself to John F. Kennedy and Benson famously said, I knew John Kennedy. John Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no John Kennedy. That was semi-practiced. Right. There was an idea that, you know, if, if it ever came, that that was the line. Quayle had made that comparison a couple of times yes. on the stump, I think. Yes. And I think you guys were ready for it. Yes, so. and that one was ready. But, you know, you have candidates like Benson, like Bill Clinton, not Ronald Reagan. I don't think – I think almost all of Reagan's stuff was something that – he was given, he practiced, and then for him it was the execution. But you have some of these great politicians who can come up with these things, you know, in that moment that can turn an election, can or can turn the momentum or can can really have an impact that a 30-second advertisement can't, that a big policy speech can't. That's why as challenged as these candidate forums are with 20 people – we're all still going to watch because somebody's going to do something we don't expect and we're going to wake up the next day and say, this is different today than it was yesterday. It is a long road. This is the first of many. So to be continued. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 